morning, everyone. Let's, see. Let's hear those words from Psalm 145 again. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Lord, our God, as we come and hear of your wonderful acts, we pray that um, we would meditate upon them. And would that lead us to celebrating your abundant goodness and joyfully singing of your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I was um, reading some stories yesterday of some former students of um, Kiev Theological Seminary who have continued to serve in their country amidst the war going, all, going on all around them. Um, one left his business and his home to minister to families displaced by the war. Another has bought a vehicle which he's driven to the front where all the fighting is, is happening, and he uses it to transport soldiers, injured soldiers, to hospital. And at the same time, he gives out pocket New Testaments to uh, soldiers. Yet another has established a, a conference, a gathering of chaplains to train chaplains in post-traumatic stress um, and, and counseling. It really is extraordinary how Christians have found ways to minister and serve in the Ukraine amidst um, such severe conflict at great risk to themselves. And those uh, Ukrainian Christians, their faith, their testimonies reminded me of the description of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Stories like that are very inspiring, but they may also leave us thinking, you know, I wish I had their faith. I wish I had their courage, the faith and the courage to walk in to the unknown, to quote Elsa, into possible danger, without fear, whatever the consequences. But how can you have such confidence and assurance when the challenges are overwhelming and completely beyond your capacity to change after you're diagnosed with cancer, when you're the only Christian in your family, when your church is only halfway to raising enough funds towards an important building project, when your plans for your children don't pan out, when you relapse back into overspending or gambling or booze to find some measure of happiness when the burdens pile up and up when the church is not what you'd like it to be? How can you possibly have faith and confidence when those things seem insurmountable? Well, in a way, 1 Samuel chapter 14 is an illustration of Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Because as we'll see, faith and confidence in the face of sin evil or overwhelming burdens is not something that we can find inside ourselves. It's something that comes by looking through the clouds of our troubles to the one who is incomparably great and inexhaustibly good. 
what we'll see is that it's not the measure of our faith that counts, but the object of our faith. In James Hudson Taylor's words, you do not need a great faith, but faith in a great God. So let's um, get back um, into the scene of, of 1 Samuel 14. And uh, hopefully you'll remember at the end of 1 Samuel 13 how Saul and the Israelites were um, not in a great way, frankly, compared to the Philistine army. They were puny. Uh, they went from 300,000 troops in chapter 11 to 3,000 in chapter 13. And at the beginning of chapter 14, there are just 600 soldiers with Saul. Not only that, the Philistine raiding party stripped away anything of value. And the Israelites couldn't rebuild their army because they were effectively demilitarized. Iron workers were banned, so they couldn't make weapons. They were weak in every respect. They were very much in jeopardy. And what 1 Samuel 14 displays is two drastically different responses to that same threat. Saul and Jonathan are father and son, but spiritually speaking, they are worlds apart. There is no likeness between them. Jonathan is a model of faith and faithfulness. Saul is an example of distrust and disobedience. And their contrasting perspectives lead them to taking different approaches to the same confronting problem. As we walk through the story again, we're going to explore the contrast between them, seeing what we can learn along the way. Well, first, see how Jonathan's faith is confident in God's power. In verse 1, Jonathan takes the initiative with a, a very brave and creative plan. Come, he says to his armor bearer, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other the south towards Geba. It was a bold plan, to say the least. Humanly speaking, there's no reason for optimism about how it's going to pan out. It's just Jonathan and his right-hand man against a well-equipped and strongly guarded Philistine outpost. What's more, one Hebrew scholar wonders whether the names Bozes and Senna loosely correspond to slippery and thorny, i.e. the route to the Philistines was inhospitable, pretty much impossible. Yet Jonathan is not foolhardy. His plan may be bold, but it's also considered. And most crucially, it's God-centered. Verse 8, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. I.e., what gives Jonathan his courage to do this, to carry out this plan, is not his learning, or his background, or his skills, or his strength, or his intelligence, or anything like that. There's nothing in his circumstances to give Jonathan confidence. His courage comes from his faith in a great God. 
Jonathan knows how God has delivered his people time after time from desperate and unlikely situations. And God knew, uh, Jonathan knew that God, by his power and his might, could easily give the soldiers into their hands. That's what activates him. Likewise, that's what activated the faith of the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote this type of thing to the Philippian church when he was in prison. Again, in a very desperate situation, he says, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, my vindication. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And it's that kind of confident faith, faith in the Lord that's so attractive, isn't it? Um, it's infectious. Just look at how Jonathan's armor-bearer wants to follow him. So verse 6, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised um, fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Let's go. Jonathan is completely confident in the Lord's freedom and power to act. And so his armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. You know, the best thing a church leader can do for a church is to give them confidence in the Lord. Through prayerful confidence in his power to save, by grace-filled preaching of his plan of salvation, the church doesn't need strong and capable leaders, highly skilled, highly developed, whatever it is. The church needs leaders whose confidence is in the strength of God. The best thing a parent can do for a child is to give them confidence in the Lord, leading them to see how goodness, how his goodness and power is at work in your life and in the world, imparting the good news of Christ to them through your life, through your prayers, through your words, as we said together in Psalm 145, passing on the, the acts of the, the works of the Lord from one generation to the next. The best thing a friend can do for another friend is, is to give them confidence in the Lord. Not pretending that everything is fine, but by helping them to turn bitter frustrations into faith-filled prayers. Or speaking words of encouragement, sharing the signs of God's work in their lives. Nothing can hinder the Lord. But a question remains, um, why didn't Jonathan tell Saul his plan? Saul, after all, is the king. Well, presumably because Jonathan thought that Saul was so out of touch with God's will that he'd simply squashed the plan. That's very clear from Saul's inactivity. Verse 2, he remains in the camp, in a safe space, sat under a pomegranate tree. Jonathan is active and on the move. Saul is passive. As things get too much, he avoids difficulty. He's paralyzed 
by weakness and so resigns himself to defeat. It's not a great look for the king of Israel. Jonathan is courageous. Saul is shown up to be a coward. And the difference between them is not their weakness or their circumstances, which remain similar. It's where they put their confidence. For Saul, confidence is found in having the bigger army, strength in numbers or strength in self. For Jonathan, confidence is found in God's power to save, even when you're at your weakest. Faith is confident in God's power. Second, faith is secure in God's goodness. Verse 6 again. <clears throat> Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. What's especially striking, to me at least, is that Jonathan doesn't know what will happen. There's no guarantee of safety. He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps, perhaps not. It's up to God. He's free to act as he wills. And Jonathan is content to trust him because he knows that the Lord is good. He knows the Lord's love and generosity in creation, in his calling, in the covenant promises to Israel, in the commandments given for their good, and in the Lord's commitment to bless them. He is secure in the Lord's goodness and therefore free to act in a way that may look very foolish to other people. Even if the plan fails, it's still an adventure with the Lord. It's as if, Jonathan says, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, God can do mighty works with very small resources, and God may be glad to do it in this case. And how can we know, dear armor-bearer, unless we place ourselves at his disposal? Faith says nothing can hinder the Lord. Perhaps things will work out in the way we hope. Perhaps not, and that's okay. Because the Lord is sovereign. He's not lost control. And the Lord is wise. He knows what he's doing. And the Lord is good. He continues to pour out the riches of his grace. And that's so freeing. Because you know what? What's true for Jonathan is also very much true for us. We too have been created, called. We've inherited the covenant promises, been given the commands for our good. We've become objects of the Lord's commitment. And what's more, we now see even more clearly and receive what Israel could only long for and look forward to in hope. We see Christ, who has gone before us into battle, who is the perfect king we need and who's come to set his people free from sin and establish his kingdom forever. He is our security. Not the number of people at church, not the strength of our leaders, the state of our building project, what's in the bank account, the verdict of the doctor, how you're perceived by others. Christ. Paul says, again, in Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead, 
Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. On the other hand, Saul looks on his circumstances with worldly eyes. In Paul's language, he puts confidence in the flesh. He relies upon what he can see and know and control. And so if there's no guarantee of victory, if the Philistines have got the greater army, why risk going to the battle? I'm just going to sit under my pomegranate tree. Whereas Jonathan's security in the Lord made him imaginative and courageous, Saul's lack of faith simply makes him pragmatic and half-hearted. And even when the Lord does act in a powerful way, like in verse 15, then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul still tries to engineer things in a human-centered way. He gets Ahijah, the, the priest, from a very, frankly, discredited and rejected line of priesthood um, comes from Eli's family who made all sorts of errors with his sons did at least taking objects of worship into battle um, using them as instruments of manipulation in direct violation of God's commands uh, to win and it seems that Saul does that same thing again as if God needs the mechanism of Saul's ritual to save his people You know, God doesn't need us. He is free and good and perfect, even without us. We don't complete him. He is complete in himself. And the reason that that really matters is because it means that my prayers and actions don't force God's hands. He's not dependent on my, um, you know, frailties and being tossed around here and there as if he's some kind of cosmic vending machine that only gives when I put in the right coin and punch in the right code. Rather, when we pray, he is already complete in his goodness and we come into his presence as his children through Christ and trusting ourselves to his good and perfect will, not bending his will to ours. Praying our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is such a contrast to Saul's approach. Have another look at verse 19. When the battle heats up, notice how Saul tells the priest to withdraw from the ritual before it's complete. Remove your hand, he says. Why is that? Well, it seems that in in Saul's mind, there's now something bigger and more important to think about than seeking the Lord, something more worthy of his attention. So he's impatient, he's impulsive, inattentive, and therefore unaware and disconnected from God. He's too busy with that bigger thing to hear from him. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you that chime with your experience it it certainly does with mine personally I was convicted by that approach this very week I had 
a lot of admin to get through, kids to ferry around, meetings to attend, and oh yeah, a sermon to write. And I felt overwhelmed with the information that was um, coming upon me. And so when I sat down to pray, it sounded something like this, Lord, I'm really busy. I don't have much time. Please help me to get this done and to do it well. Amen. Oh, and uh, bless that person in this circumstance and, and that other person with that problem. Right, on to 1 Samuel 14. Now, there is nothing wrong with short prayers of, in, in busy times. The Lord loves it when we seek him, knocking at his door. But I became aware that my prayer wasn't really entrusting myself to God and seeking his will and company with me. Rather, my, my prayer was just a, a cheap mechanism for blessing. There is far more joy and security in real communion with God, even if it means laying down other good things uh, and rushing around with God in your pocket, going ahead without his guidance. A faith secure in God's goodness is unhurried. It's secure enough to stop, to pray, to worship, even when life is at its fullest. Um, a writer called Andrew Sullivan says that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, pleasure-seeking, but distraction. John Mark Comer says it's um, hurry. Hurry is the biggest problem to faith today. Jonathan's faith is secure in God's goodness. Finally, and much more briefly, faith is active in love. If you go on to read the rest of this chapter later, what you'll find is that Saul's leadership places burdens on the backs of his people. He makes a, a very rash decision, which brings distress on the people in verse 24. The word is hard-pressed. It's the same word used of the Philistine army oppressing the Israelites. And by that decision, Saul leads the people into sin. He makes them tired and weary and nearly kills the man who saved them, Jonathan really is a terrible model for leadership. Um, and it requires God's people to do more than God has asked of them. So at the end of this account, we might be left wondering, wouldn't Jonathan just make a better king than Saul? He's certainly proven himself to be more qualified. Through Jonathan, the people are led to deliverance and victory over their oppressors. Yet, despite his noble character and ability to lead, Jonathan is nevertheless not the one chosen by God to be king. Later in the book, we'll see that more clearly as Jonathan serves as a faithful servant and friend to the anointed one, David. His faithfulness to God and his chosen one matters much, much more than his own achievement and recognition. And so in that sense, Jonathan is much more of a, a John the Baptist type figure than the Messiah. He's happy to pave the way and, and give way to David, the king of God's choosing. But of course, as we know well by now, David himself was just a shadow of the forever king to come. Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of David, is ultimately the one who unburdens his people, saying, come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not placing extra things upon them. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you want a a joy-filled, confident faith, Follow Jonathan's lead by looking to him, to the Lord who saves by many or by few, even by the one, by the one Savior. Faith is confident in God's power. Faith is secure in God's goodness. And faith is active in love. May the Lord shape us in this way of faith in all that we're facing today. Amen.